Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect. Communicate. Create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast all about, you've guessed it, Brexit. As always, I am joined by Christian Spence. Hello. Hello. And Alex Davis. Hiya. Uh, now, before we get into today's podcast, a uh, big thank you for following us on Twitter, at, Pe- uh, at Pearson underscore FSB. And uh, also, you, you're at... Um, I'm at, at GMCC underscore Christian. I'm Alex. at, at GMCC underscore Alex. And also, a massive thank you for subscribing to us on, uh, on iTunes, on Acast and leaving those all-important iTunes reviews. We really do appreciate it. Right, let's get into this then. Um, Finally, uh, although we do have a general election going on, we've got some concrete um, electoral results. Who wants to kick off with this one then? Go on, I'll just start as an intro really. Um, I mean, the really big news, I think, um, the media of course is focused on the general election and what this means and have the SNP done really, really well or really badly. I think actually just a really good bit of good news, not necessarily related to Brexit, is actually here in Greater Manchester and in five other places, we have our directly elected mayors. Um, so it's really big news for, for devolution and governance in the UK. I mean, mm. It's still being, I think the significance of it is still being underplayed. I don't think the media has quite got its head around exactly what it means. Um, but for, for those cities, for us here in Greater Manchester, our, our neighbours down the M62 in Liverpool uh, and across the country, it's a really big moment. Um, so I think, yeah, it, it kind of got foreshadowed by everything else because, of course, the really big news, uh, you know, the media is focusing on is is the locals and what does that mean um, more nationally? Now, let me just stop you there. I know it's not necessarily Brexit related, but uh, just tell me why you are so enthusiastic about directi- directly elected uh, mayors. I think it, it's just a huge change in the way the UK does its politics. That's probably a bit of a blunt way of putting it. But um, you know, the UK has for a very long time been one of the most centrally controlled, centrally governed, centrally financed countries in the developed world. 
Um, we saw some moves towards devolution, of course, under the previous Labour administration, and they, they uh, created what we now call the devolved nations, mm-hmm. with, the, with the Parliament in, in Scotland and the Assemblies in, in Wales and Northern Ireland. Of course, the then Deputy Prime Minister, John Prescott, had a go at creating a regional assembly. Uh, he asked the North East what they thought of it, and they, they told him pretty bluntly, no, thank you very much. Um, but since then, kind of the narrative has, has changed from, from regions to cities. Yes. Uh, that's really the big change in the last 10 years or so. Uh, and it was, it, was in, it was towards the end of the previous, the previous Labour government in 2008-2009, we started to see talk about odd things like combined authorities and what those might mean. Uh, but Manchester was one of the two pilots of those uh, all the way back in 2009, found its Which, feet more firmly uh, a couple of years later. Because, of course, Manchester lost its referendum to have a dele- uh, an ele- directly elected mayor first time round. It did, and that was for the city of Manchester only, so just for the local authority itself. Salford also had one at the same time and said yes. Uh, so we already have one directly elected mayor within Greater Manchester, but just looking after just Salford local authority itself. These ones that have come in this time are across the entire city region. So this mayor is um, looks after essentially across the ten city regions. The main powers are over infrastructure and housing, transport, regulation of buses, spatial planning. So it's the big mm-hmm. picture, looking long term strategy uh, at how you grow. The day to day stuff will still be delivered by the local authorities as it is now. Excellent. Well, it wasn't just Manchester that had uh, had various various uh, various elections. There was also local elections. What do you read into these local election results for the big events in June? Um, I think uh, just giving it a kind of brief overview, the, the big talking points really are just how well the Conservatives did out of this. Um, and how poorly Labour did in particular. And then, I mean, UKIP were, were essentially wiped out. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's an interesting story there uh, too. So, I mean, the Conservatives' net gains of the 558, I think. Um, Labour lost something like 300-odd. Um, so it's a big kind of flip uh, in, in terms of who people are voting for. Um, and so it kind of, you know, everything points to the fact that the Tories are going to get this big majority that they're after um, on, on June the 8th. Um, on, on the UKIP's side of things it's it's pretty interesting um i, I particularly found the reactions from um paul nuttall and, and people like that themselves particularly interesting because what they were kind of saying was you know well we're happy to kind of step aside because <laughs> our, our job is done yeah, yeah because our job is done and, and the conservatives seem to have taken up the uh, the mast uh, slightly uh, slightly as well right okay so which of the two narratives is correct Narrative number one, the Conservatives are now a UKIP tribute act. Or narrative number two, that this election has only been held to pacify hard Brexiteers. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's one or the other. It's got to be a bit of both, hasn't it, surely? I think it is, yeah. It's not exclusive. I mean, I think, you know, we, we talked I think, in the last podcast just after uh, Theresa May had called this election. No, there's a colossal amount of politics involved here. Um, yeah. You know, the, the next few months particularly, the next two years generally, the next five years probably are going to be, uh, are going to be really complex for UK government. Mm. It's going to put a lot of politicians... I think in places that they feel very uncomfortable. Good. Um, absolutely. It's good to make them work for their money. Yep. Um, it's also going to raise a lot of issues for them that actually a lot of them just haven't got their head around yet. So it is really challenging. Um, and you know, I think you know, one of the things we've explored in this podcast over the last few weeks is um, a lot of this stuff isn't easy. Um, I think the challenge is when you're talking to people, be they pro-Remain or pro-Brexit, as soon as you start talking 
from my point of view, kind of pragmatically in policy, they become incredibly defensive mm. from both sides. You're saying that because you want to stay. You're saying that because you want to remain. It's like, no, no, it's, I'm not saying this process can't be done. Um, I think it's still perfectly plausible to you know, navigate your way through this, but it's hard. Um, and it's going, to be, it's going to make a lot of that complex. So huge political decision by Theresa May. Go and take the chance. You know, firm up the parliamentary majority uh, in Westminster. This will give her a mandate right through till 2022, if the parliament runs its full term. Um, by which point, you know, according to the European Parliament, we'll be the, be done? Of the transitional deal. Yeah, yeah we should be we should be out out, um, as it were, by that stage. So it's a colossal mandate politically. Um, Alex, you want to talk about kind of the is is this Theresa May parking her tanks on UKIP's lawn? Um, I, well, I mean, UKIP is as it says in the tin, the UK Independence Party, and we, we seem to be going for independence. And it, I don't know if it ties into this whole, I, I hate to say the, the slogan, but strong and stable leadership thing. That's a great slogan. The, the fact <laughs> that, it's the fact that I, I think, obviously a lot of people which probably voted UKIP in the past now see the Conservatives as the party that are actually going to yeah. deliver on this. Um, and so it, it's easy to see why they, they, they would see it as being pointless to vote for UKIP at this point. Um, but have the Tories turned into UKIP uh, just because they're the ones which are going to spearhead Brexit? I'm, I'm not quite sure. Um, but then again, I'm not sure, qu- quite sure what UKIP's other policies are other than, other than independence. So it's, it's quite difficult to say. Yeah, uh, well, it's difficult to say all around, isn't it? Because there's not a shred of detail or a shred of information as to what Theresa May is going to do with Brexit. Hmm. Other than it's going to be what's secure and stable, whatever that is. Absolutely, I'm all I'm all for strong and stable. Strong and stable. Um, it's, no, and that's it. I mean, we had the we had the twelve point plan for Britain in the Lancaster House speech back in January. Uh, that was followed up during the Article Fifty Bill with the with the Government White Paper, which kind of fleshes that out a bit, I think, Alex. Mm. But not not a great deal no. beyond those twelve points. Um, so, you know, short of knowing that it's outside the single market, it's probably outside the customs union with some kind of bespoke trade agreement. We want to get the rights for citizens sorted out. Um, we want this to be, as you say, a strong and stable transition. Um, that's about all we know. Um, yeah, there, there, was, there were rumours this week that the government's going to release its no deal. Um, like, Yeah, plan. I saw that. Really? Um, yeah, which is which is an interesting one. I, I mean, I don't know how if it's going to be costed or if there's going to be any numbers involved because I'm pretty sure that the Treasury released a an analysis of what No Deal meant before the referendum, and, and the numbers were very negative. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder how they're going to kind of put that together with with that Treasury. No, I, I read that over the weekend, and I think it's about them sort of trying to strengthen. We I think we talked again last last time. This you know we're moving into the brinksmanship phase now. Both sides need to show how serious they are, um, and I think this is kind of the UK government's attempt to say, look, we are considering no deal. You know, the, the option of us walking away with nothing is is genuinely on the table. Um, you know, kind of trying to fire that 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 uh, what's the word? You know, kind of fire that weapon really across the across the across EU. the bow. Exactly. Um, the problem is, I think the problem is, you know, you've, we've read it not really from the UK government, but I think from those people who are commenting openly on the UK's position. Mm. And we've definitely read it from the European Commission. They've been very, very clear on this. The Commission, the Parliament, everyone on that side. That actually, we know no deal is kind of so bad that there's no way we'll end up with no deal. On both sides? On both sides. So, you know, it's... Is there no way? It's political games. I'm not sure that I agree with this. I mean, there's one thing that the European Union clearly does and has done so far is it follows strictly its own rules it, it, it's, a, it's a body that, that places 
strong value on bureaucracy. It is we like... can say that. And I don't mean that negatively, yeah. that kind of sounds churlish. Um, and it's really important. Like, one of the people I think we've talked about in these podcasts before, and certainly I know Alex talked about it on the on the blog, is a chap called David Allen Green who writes for who writes for the FT of newspapers are available. Um, <laughs> he's well worth following. He's one of the very few people I think who's who's got his head around of the, a lot of the legalities of all of this. Um, and actually, he's, he's done a recent three-part blog which kind of just sums up how the EU has reacted since we... Well, actually, since before we sent the letter, uh, since the referendum decision. Um, I don't know if you saw that. And it's a, it's a really great just laying out of actually the EU has followed absolutely everything yes. it said it would yeah. from day one. It has not departed. It came out with a position... The day after we voted... In fact, the day we voted to leave... The EU, uh, the EU came out, gave its position on how negotiations would go, what the process it would follow would be, what the legal consequences of those things are, the order in which the negotiation would take place, and it has not varied from that statement nearly 12 months ago, and one iota. Yeah. Um, they've actually been incredibly transparent. Um, you know, it took six months for Theresa May to give the 12-point plan. It took another two, three months for us to get the bill through. And actually, here we are now um, in May, and actually, we still don't know anymore. Of course, it, it, it's kind of like trying to disagree with the um, iTunes terms and conditions. You, you just don't, you, know, you just don't have an option. Um, yeah. Now, just going back to that, there is, there is a feeling that the EU have got their house in order. They know the rules. They know the legalities, and they are very open with it. And that could not be a more stark contrast with the UK government's position, which seems to be complete secrecy. How much do you think it's the UK government not getting their head around the brief? And how much do you think it's just different negotiating tactics? Um, it, it, it's, it's difficult to say. I mean, the, way, the way that the government seems to have gone about this is that they've set out the destination, um, ultimately. But what we don't know this, at this point, as, as I've said before, is when they hope to arrive at that destination. Hmm. And I think it, it's kind of because they're just trying to keep their options open. Um, and we don't want to tie ourselves down too too much um, going into this. But at the same time, we have got to try and put forward this idea that we know exactly what we want and that it's going to be, you know, the negotiations are going to be tough. But I, I really think that we're trying to keep our options open at this point. So they're kind of putting, uh, setting out the, the final destination, but not how we get there. Um, whereas the EU have been very much more specific, um, as Christian said. So. Yeah, they, they've kind of set out their position much, in much more detail uh, before we did, and they kind of haven't shifted from it since then. Um, and so it's, it's quite difficult to say who's got the upper hand, really, um, in terms of the plan thus far. Um, obviously, we don't know how much work's being done behind the scenes that we just don't know about either. I mean, if, if the government really is costing up the no-deal strategy, that would be something which would be very interesting and might influence things. Um, because uh, also I, I read this week that there was no kind of economic impact analysis done of the 12-point plan when that came out. It was just, that was it, that was the work that they'd done. Um, and we all know that the civil service before the referendum was told basically not to plan for no deal. Um, and, you know, so it, it's, it's hard to say really um, whether this is a negotiating strategy or whether we're kind of just feeling our way through and trying to get the best, uh, get ourselves into the best position. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I guess I'm probably slightly stronger on this. I, th I think we've just not got the house in order. That's that's my real fear. Um, and I've, I've tried to be kind of pretty balanced in all of this podcast for the, for the last few weeks, as I have to be for my job. Um, I think the EU is, the, I think the EU, first of all, it's fairly clear the EU all 
always held most of the cards. Mm. You know, the, 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 the country breaking away from the relationship is naturally in a weaker point. Of course it is. Uh, that's always going to be the case. The fact that the EU has laid out, it laid out its protocol on day one, uh, it's followed that very clearly. Um, it's high-level aims that it had already laid out by the first um, council meeting they had after the referendum, which was in July, uh, are basically the plans that came through in the European Parliament draft several months ago. They are the plans that were signed off by the European Commission and the, uh, and the heads of state just uh, last week or two weeks ago. Um, essentially, that's it. The gambit is down. You know, the EU has laid out with utmost clarity what it wants. Um, and of course, the nature of the EU bureaucracy, how that system works, essentially, is it won't be the European Parliament doing the negotiations, it won't be the European Commission. Uh, they're setting up an independent team of investigators, which they call TF50, Task Force 50, uh, who are going to do that. And they only have the power to negotiate within those parameters that have now been set out mm -hmm. by right. the European Parliament and the European Commission. So actually, essentially, what they want is on the table and open and clear, mm. and has been for a very long time. What we want is not really on any table at all. So, uh, just to be clear, Task Force 50, is that the task force led by, um, is it Commissioner Bar Bar Barnier? In fact, is, is he Commissioner? Uh, I think so. Alex is the, Alex is the guru on uh, who. Let me just um, find, find my notes on this. It is. It's the, it's the lead negotiator for the Commission. Yeah, so, so Barnier is the, the lead negotiator, yeah. So he's going to be in charge of running the day-to-day -day process of the negotiations. Um, so, yeah, it, it's safe to say that he's going to be the head of um, this task force, task force. 50. Um, just on, on that point that Christian was making though, do you not feel that the EU has kind of set out what it wants but it doesn't have to be as specific as to exactly how this is going to happen no. and so, so it, it, for, the, for the EU it's almost like for us we can set out these 12 broad objectives but at some point we need to drill down to the detail and figure out how we're going to achieve those things whereas on the EU side they can set out broad objectives and then just see what we can back with. And I think that's it I think you're being in like any kind of negotiation if you, the person who puts the detailed plan on the table first and says respond to that mm -hmm. immediately gets a bit of an advantage yeah. because you've shaped the point is you've shaped the way the negotiations are going to go um, and also I think they've, they've dived into, they've talked about some of the, the the really difficult detail in a way that the the UK hasn't. So, you know, Theresa May, you know, from from day one when she was uh, when she was installed as PM, talked about you know it's important we protect the rights of uh, of both EU citizens in the UK and vice versa. Um, the problem is that's a very broad and difficult statement, which mm. the EU has clarified. It has gone actually into incredible detail about what that means. It is not just about do you have a right to a job. It's about what work permits do you have health and uh, health care included? Do you have pensions included? Do you have the rights of a spouse in another country to come and join you? What happens to those children? Can they come and study here, even if they've been born in another country today in twenty years' time? That is the question that goes over protecting the rights of, of, of citizens. What do you mean by rights? Um, at least the EU has come forward and said, this is what we mean now, uh, by rights. The UK is still just saying it's important. My understanding is what the EU really dislikes is the UK tendency to make general political statements but without the level of detail which you've just explained then. So we're happy to say, let's, uh, let, let, let's all look after the rights of individuals but then it kind of finishes and we'll sort out the details later. And that's apparently what they just can't abide. No, and I think you know, this is where I'm going to come down slightly on the EU side. I think I, I agree. We've got 
you know, we've talked about this in all the previous episodes. We've got a colossal amount of detail to cover in the next. Mm. It's not even two years. Uh, you know, we're down to probably about sixteen months, seventeen months now uh, before we need to start sending whatever the deal is around the Parliament. Um, the fact we're still talking about rights with with no more detail than that at this stage. Um, you know, the clock is ticking. Um, it's not clear. Okay, the EU, you know, the UK government hasn't necessarily spelt out the detail on paper, but there's not a lot of signs it's actually thought about what that detail looks like uh, for you, for citizenship, for children of people who once worked in the UK five years ago, because that's the kind of level of detail the EU is already proposing. Do we know what Brexit would look like if we just? Um, if we just went along with all of the EU's uh, regulations or all the EU's suggestions of what Brexit would look like? Uh, I don't... not sure that we do. I think, yeah, probably bits of it we do. Um, I mean, that one we just talked about, rights of, yeah. rights required, that's pretty clear. They, the EU knows what it wants to see. Um, whether it'll get there in the negotiations is the thing, but they've, they've set that out very clearly. Um, outside the single market is clear. We know we know that. That's yep. their view too. Um, future trade deal, they too want a comprehensive one. Mm-hmm. They, they, they've been very, very clear about that, but other things have to be sorted out first. The, you know, number one, the divorce bill. Number two, rights of citizens. And then we'll start to look at, uh, look at what all that looks like. Um, but beyond that, you know, membership of other agencies, all that kind of stuff, none of that has actually come from the EU side uh, just yet. All right, so let's talk about um, uh, one of the things which the EU is trying to shape. That is the size of the bill. This week we had 50 billion, we had 70 billion, we have, uh, we've had 100 billion. Um, uh, who, wants take, who wants to take this one? Um, policy it, by big round numbers. Yeah. It's it's difficult, isn't it? Because it, this has kind of crept up, and I think I think when Juncker first kind of suggested a number, it was it was something like sixty billion. Mm-hmm. Um, and last week, uh, again, I think I think it's still stemming from Juncker uh, mainly. It's 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 now being pushed up to close to a hundred billion euros. Um, and the, the thing is, it, it is big round numbers, and obviously there will have to be some complicated uh, calculations to be done. Um, but at this at this point, I, I think there are people, if, even going back before the referendum, who were suggesting if you really wanted to add all this stuff up, you probably reach a number that's in in that sort of range anyway. I don't think it's really a, a surprise that these type of types of numbers are being thrown around. Can can one of you give me a comparison to how big this number is? Because lots of big numbers of, of you know, like what's spent on healthcare, for instance. What is the what is the police budget? Okay, so help, well, NHS budget in the UK is about 120 billion uh, sterling. So that's going to be what 140 billion euros. So you're looking at probably 80 percent of the national health budget. Uh, I mean, that's one year's budget. You know, this will be accrued over accrued over a number of years. But that's the kind of scale. So. 100 billion will be about a seventh, just less than a seventh, close to a sixth of what the UK raises in tax every year. Wow. Yeah. And the, the, the thing is about these, these big, broad numbers as well, is, as Christian just said, this will be over, you know, probably 10 years we'll have to settle this stuff up. And this isn't the net bill, um, but again... Sorry, I, stop, I'm going to stop you there. Yeah. Explain the difference between the net bill and the gross bill for us. Uh, well, there are, there are a number of uh, you know, programmes and, and things that we're involved with in the EU that we get money back from. 
Um, and so this bill essentially is going to be the gross bill that we need to pay them in the first instance, but we're still going to reap some of the benefits from paying into the EU budgets previously. Yeah. And there's still other things which will unravel perhaps over the next decade. So, so the, actually, the, 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 the nice snappy one which I heard over the weekend on this is take, take your mind back to Boris's bus yes. with the £350 million pounds yeah. a week on it. £350 million a week is not necessarily untrue. That is our gross contribution to the European Union. Our net contribution is just under £250 million a week. That's our net volume. So theoretically, we give them £350, billion, we all, £350 million a week, sorry, then we get some rebated back because we have regional development, spend, regional development fund spending here, we have structural fund spending here, um, there are other investments that flow back into the UK as part of the EU pot. So that's the netting off. So it's this concept again that, yes, potentially £100 billion uh, euro gross bill, uh, but the net bill could, uh, could net that down to 50 or 70 billion overall. Understood, right. So you're looking at things, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, things like the institutions of the EU, the buildings of the EU, money we've got in the EU investment bank, yep. that, kind, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's it. Intangible assets on the balance sheet. You know, theoretically, the UK has contributed towards the, build, the physical buildings that the EU now occupies. We should also be looking, you know, I expect we will be looking for a share of that, that balance sheet. As we'll end up with a holiday home in Luxembourg or something. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, <laughs> so... Uh, the other thing as well, which I thought was quite interesting, is that number apparently includes things which haven't been costed yet, but are political, are political commitments. For instance, aid to, aid to Turkey. That's right. So there's all sorts of stuff included in here. Um, so some of it, of course, is our normal gross payments. So, you know, we, we, we talked about 250 million. We continue to pay that until we leave because as part of the, part of the European Union, we're still subject to all, all of those treaties. There's things like our, the pensions for EU staff, you know, our staff in the EU, but the EU pension pot generally uh, for MEPs' pension pots. There's investments that the EU has committed to. Um, so, you know, the EU works over five-year budgeting cycles. Essentially, we have already agreed as members of the EU that the EU will invest cash in projects A, B, C, D and E. Those will be regional development fund projects in, uh, in Eastern Europe. There'll be regional development funds in Manchester, mm. which will be part of all that. Um, there, and then, as you said, there are aid programmes, which might just be you know, round numbers that have been promised over the years. Uh, the EU will, I, to be honest, I think perfectly reasonably say, look, you've signed up to these contracts. The spending for these will go ahead beyond the UK's membership. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, these are liabilities which are due. Yeah, I mean, I've got to say, I do have a huge problem with this bill. I know it's, um, you know, extremely controversial for a certain, Bre- certain Brexiteers. I, but it I, does I, feel I, like this, this is what we've committed to do. It is. Let's wait until the end of that. And that as always, cycle. you know, that I, you know, I always in this stuff try and use you know parallels with business. You know, if we we enter a you know a ten year contract to deliver services for for company B, four years into that we say actually we've had enough, we're going. That company will very rightly mm-hmm. um, say you promised the cash. Yeah. Um, and I think that's actually perfectly reasonable. And you said you know some of the hard the hard Brexiters are saying well just walk away we don't owe them a penny. Um, true we don't. And you know the EU's lawyers themselves have admitted there is no legal terms yeah. under which they can enforce uh, collection of this cash. But it's them we're trying to do a deal with. Yeah, and, and they've said that the bill is something which they want to sort out early on because it's it's essentially contingent on the trade talks. Junkers kind of 
made it clear that in his in his view the bill needs to be sorted out before we can start to talk about trade yeah and, um, and he's also actually been clear to be fair that it, they're not bothered about sorting out the exact number and they're not bothered about seeing the check clear yeah. before we start <laughs> talk but can we agree the principle the methodology I think he you'll said, yeah. start to calculate that number yeah. um, and then we'll work all the rest out but we just want to understand I think the complication comes doesn't it with the actual valuing of the bill I don't think many people have a huge issue with the notion of the bill just how have you come to this number and I think that's where we're going to get into all sorts of choppy water yeah absolutely there'll be lots up for negotiation um, certainly and I suspect the EU will be ready to flex on a lot of this as well it's, uh, it's just about how friendly we are in the negotiations I guess now I, like, like I said before no real problem with, with, with the bill but there have been some things recently which have caused well some people a little bit more concern Northern Ireland would be one Theresa May's comments on election meddling, which, I, I mean, I can't remember one civilised country saying something about this to another civilised country ever. This is, I mean, only two or three years ago, this would be unheard, completely unheard of. Um, and, of course, of course, Gibraltar. So when you put all these things together, do you think the gloves are starting to come off? Um, it, it, it certainly seems like we're not being particularly productive, only being, you know, a couple of months after Article 50 has been triggered. Um, and I, I think that the, posit- the positive for me to say, uh, the, th- the whole thing with Theresa May, I mean, that, that announcement, I, I, I don't actually know specifically what she was referring to. It seems like a bit of a weird statement to make and a bit of a weird time to make it. Um, but uh, what ha- what then happened was obviously we're going to talk about this dinner with Juncker as well. Mm. Um, oh yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So obviously uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think I think it was uh, May and Juncker had a, a, a private dinner together at Number Ten, and um, there are all sorts of leaks about what was said. And Juncker said something like, uh, when he walked out, he was ten times more sceptical about the whole thing than he was when he went in. Um, and and then obviously we've got Theresa May making the statement as well. Um, but then we've got people who are kind of trying to mediate this whole thing, like Donald Tusk, who kind of every time something like this happens, comes out and says, "Come on, guys, like let's just stop rowing because this is going to be as diff- difficult as it is." Yeah. Um, and so yeah, it's not it's not great to see this type of rhetoric being thrown around so early on. Um, but. I mean, hopefully, hopefully, uh, Tusk is probably the most important uh, person uh, involved in this whole process. And then I guess maybe next to him is probably Barnier, who also seems like a, a quite a pragmatist too. Um, and so really, I'm, I'm wondering whether it's, it's, it's really just um, kind of a bit of roughhousing by, you know, the bloody difficult woman and, and her counterpart from the EU. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think what's interesting is, I remember when she, was, she gave that speech, whatever day it was, um, uh, last week, is I'd, I'd sort of got my tweet deck open and we're just sort of, you know, following the stuff, mm. is actually whilst me and I think a lot of others, and certainly my, you know, I'm going to sound like, you know, the, the, the privileged white middle-class male who's you know, <laughs> part of the establishment problem, and that's fine, I'll take whatever you want to throw at me. Um, I kind of sit there with my, hands, my head in my hands thinking, what on earth are you doing? How is this productive? But actually, there's a, there's a, you know, this appears to resonate incredibly well with the general public. Um, you know, the public seem to be reading it on the whole as actually this is a sign of strength. This is a sign of someone who is, you know, this is the place was playing into her hands. Mm-hmm. I'm sure she's doing this because she knows this. It's playing into her hands in terms of the general election campaign. Is that even for those, you know, there was a survey recently, wasn't there? For even those people who would vote, who would prefer we stayed in the EU, um, they would still prefer to see Theresa May 
um, yeah. uh, in power because that's the person they see we're back to strong and stable again yeah. you know? um, well, I mean, through all that so I think it, it is odd how all this is viewed yeah. um, uh, know, I mean, by, by different parts of the electorate and the one thing we didn't talk about at the start of the programme is Labour and I don't think we should talk about Labour anyway um, for that exact reason they seem to have nothing to say of any kind of substance about Brexit it, it, it's hugely challenging. I think at a time when you know, regarding regardless of anyone in anyone's individual political opinion, the fact that you've got you've got a government that is just receiving no opposition and no challenge to its ideas from anybody uh, is is a huge concern. And I think that the fact we've got this far in to this process, because people say, oh, you know, Labour are having a difficult time now. It's like Labour, how, you know, it campaigned to remain. Of course, the party's official position. Uh, was remain up to the referendum. Since the referendum result, it has not added any clarity no, I mean, uh, into this debate about really what its position is. I mean, you have to have some sympathy with you know a guy who might be one of the um, prizes guys in in all of politics, Keir Starmer, who is tr- is trying his absolute hardest to, to to do something, and yet you know there isn't there is no coherent message at all from uh, Labour leadership. No, that I think they're just trying to you know he's desperately trying to square the circle of you know uh, a party a party itself, the party polit- the, the the parliamentary Labour Party, uh, and its and its leading lights who were all very much pro Remain and campaigned Remain. Uh, against a party membership that you know its constituencies on the whole uh, voted to leave, and it's finding squaring that circle very difficult. Well, we'll come back to Labour once they have something interesting to say about Brexit. We'll leave them there for now. Um, okay, we've done the bill. Um, we've kind of touched on touched on the dinner, but why don't we uh, finish like we started with elections? Um, Mr. Macron is now president of France. Good or bad for UK and Brexit? I think uh, overall good, I, I would say. Um, I, I think it, whilst we've had kind of Macron's economic advisor immediately came out and said that he would be tough on Brexit, they also said that they understand that there's a, a big mutual interest uh, and that we want to get a good out- outcome for both sides. And I think obviously if we're talking about between Macron and Le Pen, Macron is, is certainly a very pro-EU um, doesn't like the idea of Brexit, he's definitely going to be on, on their side more than ours, whereas... I, I think what was interesting there is when he came to do his, his, you know, his, his welcome speech uh, on Sunday night after the results were announced, he came on stage to yes. the European National Anthem, yes, the Marseillaise well, yeah, so, um, um, well it's a nice tune I think sends you, you know, sends you a pretty strong message yeah, but uh, yeah. So, so whilst he is definitely the, the EU candidate um, compared to Le Pen, certainly um, the, the reason why I think it, it's probably a, a better thing for Brexit than Le Pen is, is simply because it allows the EU to remain stable and to concentrate on Brexit. Absolutely. Whereas Le Pen would have been throwing all sorts of things at them, you know, saying she wants to leave the euro, um, you know, doing stuff with borders. And it, it potentially is just a massive distra- distraction and a massive hassle that the EU doesn't... The EU and we don't need at this point, I would have thought. No, that's a, that's a very good way of putting it, I think. We, we need the EU to be as stable for the next two years so it can concentrate on us. Yeah, it's sort of like the law of unintended, unintended consequences. The, you know, the, almost the natural ally that we thought we'd have in the pen actually wouldn't be that at all anyway. And certainly, I, you know, it's my view that a, a, you know, a strong and stable EU uh, is, <laughs> yeah. is, is pretty beneficial, actually. Yeah, absolutely. 
So, um, yeah, so from a strong and stable Conservative government to, to a strong and stable EU, this has been your strong and stable Brexit podcast. So uh, we will reconvene next, uh, next week. Yeah. Uh, and uh, until then, uh, goodbye. 